One of the key verses that you just heard now was Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, where he said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Translated, on the day he found me, he had something in mind. He already had an image of what I could be. I'm a long ways from that. But I caught sight of it one day. And from that day to the present, I am pressing on, forgetting what's behind me, and I'm focusing only on how I become that thing that Christ has determined I could be. Boy, man, oh man, when that vision takes over your life, it is compelling. You pull every other pursuit you're into, your job, your money, your family, your career, everything goes in to the pursuit of that. Last week, I started a conversation with you that um, I'm going to try to continue. Uh, Today, I talked last week about two different kinds of communities. One of those we called a bounded community, and the other one we called a centered community. When something is a bounded community, the people who belong to that group all came in the same way. They all act the same way. They live the same, and they all believe the same things. So if you think of the church, uh, they all got saved. And um, and now that changes from church to church. They either accepted Christ, or they took first communion, or they were baptized into the church. Um, They made a public confession of faith, if you're in the kind of the Reformed tradition, And then they uh, came to the day when they wanted to become members. And we said, if you're going to be a member, you have to believe these things. You got to live like this. If you live like that, you're out. Are you tracking? So we know who's in and who's out by how they got in and how they live and how everybody believes. A centered community is identified by each individual's relationship to the center, not to the rules not even to the beliefs. It's whether or not they have a relationship with the center and are they moving in the direction of the center. So in this kind of community, people live in different ways. They act in different ways. They sometimes believe different things. But as they move towards the center, the distance between them narrows. So what makes them one is their union with the center, not their agreement with each other. Are you tracking? So when Bonhoeffer writes life together, this is the community he talks about. He says, we have really nothing to do with each other except in Christ. We live with each other and for each other only as we live in Christ. The only thing that brings us together is what Christ has done in each of us. So it's the pursuit of Christ, not the big idea of being united. It's Christ that pulls us together. Now, it is the nature of organizations to start out centered 
And then as they get older, they start moving towards the boundaries. They divert all of their energy and attention to defining themselves, not on the basis of how much they love the center, but on how different they are from everybody not in the community. And when an organization does this, when they start developing stringent rules and regulations, what they want is a good thing. They're after integrity and righteousness inside the community. The unintended consequence is that all of the energy now is put on the boundaries. How do we define the difference between who we are and who other people are. And the moment we do this, we start to feel that the life of the energy is leaving us. How is it that the organization, all the while we have these regulations and these rules, it just feels like something is missing. There's something wrong. And so what the organization usually does is to beef up the regulations on the border (laughs) to say we need to be even more clear about how we're different from people outside. We need to insist that people all come in the same way. So there's a clear distinction between who we are. They get more conservative when they start to get shaky. The next generation comes along and says, my forefathers were too judgmental. They were keeping a lot of good-natured people out of our organization because they had all of these petty rules and rituals that you had to go through in order to get in. People, I'm a product of a church that reestablished the boundaries. I mean, we knew who we were because we knew who we weren't. And so my generation called that legalism. And we started to resist this, this kind of fortifying of the boundaries. And we waited until the old man died and then we reopened the borders and we started letting lots of people come into the organization. This is a generational thing. We're way too judgmental. We have to become more tolerant. All of our ancestors were prejudiced. They were biased. They were bigoted. They were judgmental. They were phobic. All these words that we have for people because they were protecting the boundaries. We have to let people in. Our mistake was that we never re-identified the center. We forgot that when you want to renew an organization, opening the boundaries is the second step. The first step is to redefine the center. If you open the boundaries of any organization, but you do not redefine the center, then what you get is not community. You get chaos. All of a sudden, 
There is nothing in the organization that is more important than every individual in the organization. Suddenly, the gravest offense is not that you have defied the center, but that you have offended another individual who is part of the community. And so the entire community gets fragile. I think I've just described, have I not, the last um, 50 to 60 years in our country right now. Yes? yes? This is exactly what's happened in our country. We started forgetting who we were. We got nervous. Shut the borders. Now, the argument in our country is all about the borders. The, yes, it is. <laughs> that was timed perfectly. All of the debate right now uh, on the news is about um, what do we do down at the borders, but I don't hear anybody uh, trying to address what on earth is the center of the country? Does anybody know anymore? Who are we as a people? Once we know what that is, then we'll know who belongs and who doesn't. In fact, they'll know who belongs and who doesn't until we know what the center truly is. <laughs> Everybody belongs, and so nobody belongs. Our problem really starts here. I am not suggesting, as some of you will put on social media before the service is over, that the borders is not an issue. I'm simply saying it's the second question, not the first. The first is who are we? What is worth dying for? Because until you know what's worth dying for, then you don't know how to live. There is no cause bigger than any individual. So offending another individual is the worst thing you could do. So everyone's nervous, afraid that they're going to offend somebody because there's no cause bigger than an individual. Sometimes this raises concerns among Christian organizations like churches um, that if we just open the boundaries and uh, we redefine the center, then what's going to happen is you're going to have all of these people out there come into our community acting and believing and doing anything that they want to do. And so basically, I heard this week, <laughs> thank you for writing, by the way, um, uh, basically, what you're saying is someone can just come into the church now and they can do whatever they want to do. They can uh, take whatever drug they want to take. They can sleep with whoever they want to sleep as long as they love Jesus. Watch my head. 
When a person comes into the organization and is focused on the center, they become in that moment both more liberal and more conservative than everybody else in the organization. They're more liberal because their conscience is captive to Jesus, not to the rules. And so they allow themselves privileges that other members in the organizations can't have. How can you do that, still be a Christian? How can you do that? Well, because in my conversations with God, which, by the way, happen every day for extended periods of time, he knows where to find me. He's not brought it up. Well, then you're not listening. (laughs) You're right to you. So Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. And this is why everybody in the Pharisees said, how can your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? That was a New Testament emblem that you were a friend. How can you be best buddies with sinners and hookers and tax collectors? And Jesus said, because I don't determine my community by your boundaries. If there's a stripper in Grant County, but she is already turning toward Jesus, those are my friends. But if I have somebody inside the church who knows all the liturgies, but they're looking away from Jesus, they are not my friends. I still have friends. I still have enemies. You just don't know who they are by external signs. So on one sense, this person becomes like uh, scaringly, is that a word? Liberal. Oh no, there goes the farm. I said to the first hour, it's not your farm. But in the other hand, they become more conservative because this person who is red hot on fire for Christ the center, they're not worried about sinning. Sinning, and what is a sin? Is that a sin, not a sin? Are we really still playing this? Is this really still a conversation? Can I do that and not do that and still be a sin? Anybody who is on fire for the center is not having a silly conversation about what is and is not acceptable behavior. The thing that they're worried about is anything that cools the passion and the fire that they have for the center. So what this means is this person is so focused on becoming like Jesus, even though they have all sorts of liberalities that them other members don't seem to to think is right, these people have other rules that they have written for themselves and they keep them religiously because they know if they break them, even though nobody in the community will care, it will make them cooler toward Jesus. So Jesus would say to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6, you do your alms before men, and when you pray, you pray loud in the public. You see, that's how everybody prayed. But he said to the disciples, when you pray, 
get into a closet and shut the door and say things in private to the Father. You should be guarded by a bodyguard of little rules and fetishes that other people don't worry about, but you worry about them. Others may. You cannot. So the question this morning, before we hit the message, is um, if you grew up as I did, not loving the center, just hating the rules. That ain't the same thing. And all of a sudden you're hearing me say, you need to love the center and do what you want. The question for you is, what is it that others can do that you cannot? Because if you did it, it would cool the fire in your heart for Christ. And if people knew that you had that rule, they would go, that's weird. It's kind of stringent, isn't it? Yes, it would be legalistic if I required you to do it, but I'm not. I'm simply saying for me to stay in this zone, I cannot do these things. And I require these things from myself. Boy, are you still there? Thanks, all three of you. There's one more change that um, I can make, uh, and that is if if we're going to reestablish the center, and this is a big thing for me, we in our church have got to shift. uh, Well, that's not the right word that I'm trying to use. I think I have to say we have to learn another language for talking about discipleship. Uh, What we have in the Wesleyan church, because we're kind of a holiness uh, uh, church, what that means is Everybody that is part of the church got saved one day. And man, this is a powerful thing. And so what we have in our church is we have what I'm calling a language of encounter. In fact, when we speak about getting saved, we often think about Paul's road to Damascus. This is a typical encounter kind of language. I was riding on the road one day and suddenly a light from heaven shone down, knocked me off my horse. I looked up into the light. I heard a voice say, Steve, Steve, why do you persecute me? And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, who you persecute. I was I got up from the ground. I was blind. Somehow I managed to get back on my feet. Oh, this is a great line. In Acts 22, what he says is, the men who were riding with me did not hear the voice. (laughs) But I heard the voice. And he said, why are you persecuting me? Man, this was an intensely personal, unforeseen life-altering encounter with the mystical God. And let me just stress this. 
If you've not had one of these, you just wait. It'll rattle the fillings in your teeth when you're in a room and the living God breaks into that room. You say, well, how will I know it's him? (laughs) Well, you'll know it couldn't be anyone else. It will not be an audible voice. It will be much louder than that. And it will speak from within. And in that moment, you will feel your soul both. What's the word? You will feel wrecked. Awful. And yet in that same moment, you will feel alive and cleansed. Oh, it's a moment. And so the Wesleyan Church, we have developed all this language and theology about encounter. We count the number of conversion experiences. That's an encounter. We ask people to give testimonies of the time they were saved. That's an encounter. We solicit baptisms and say, you need to be, that's all about encounter. We push people to come to the altar and to make a commitment in that that's all encounter language. My point is in Philippians chapter 3, none of this language shows up. What shows up is the language of pursuit. <laughs> Paul is not telling us his testimony in Philippians 3. He's telling us the fire that is in his heart. He says, I want to know Christ. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. This one thing I do, forgetting everything else, I strain towards the calling that Christ has put on my life. He is self-aware. He's not saying, well, praise God. He saved me. What he's saying is, I have not yet accomplished this. You got saved. And he's like, yeah, I know. Oh, but I'm not there yet. I can see him and I want him. And what I'm saying is, if our church is going to become better at discipleship, we have to add another language to our vernacular. It cannot just be language about, have you had an encounter with Jesus? That is important, but we have to listen for the fire and testimonies. We need to hear more people say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't know him yet enough. I am not there yet. I see what he wants me to be, and I'm still not there. In fact, I feel (laughs) not that I have already obtained these things, but this one thing I do, I take my career and my family and my kids and my money, and I put that in the wake of this one passion, and that is to be like him. But what happens in our revivalist churches is the moment somebody testifies to a hunger, we feel like they have to be prayed for or something. If someone were to stand up and say, oh, I don't know him enough. I am not anything like him. And it's driving me crazy. We would think, brother, have you sinned? 
had a conversation with a woman at the altar once. She said, I wish you'd pray for me. You know what I said? I said, what exactly would you like me to pray for? She said, I have sinned terribly. And here's my holiness background. I said, what did you do? You know what she said? Tears coming down her face. She said, Pastor, I don't love him enough. I don't love him enough. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Are you there? Last part. This raises the question then of what is the center. And the problem with the question is that if the center is Jesus, people listen to me. He is immense. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made, things visible and invisible, principalities and powers. All things were made by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews said, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his word. Revelation said, he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega, the one who was dead and behold is alive forevermore. So the problem with defining the center is that no individual personality is big enough to do it. When you let an individual define the center for you, you always get a Jesus, go figure, like the individual. So what you need is a way to define him that is bigger than one person's personality. Yes? Thank you. I'm suggesting three things. One of them is the word of God. And by that, I mean the scripture. I mean the gospels and the prophets and the law and the epistles and the, the books of prophecy. The apocrypha. And, and, and another is the gospel. And by that, I mean the collective action of God's people when they have heard the word and they apply it to life. And I mean the church. And by that I mean the gathered and sent community of God's people.
people, wait for it, down through the ages, when the church speaks, the whole church speaks. The dead get a vote. Christ is present in all three of these in a way that cannot be hijacked by a single individual. If we let the word speak, all of it, law, prophets, gospels, epistles, it will say things to us in the voice of Christ himself. Jesus said, John 15, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. That's what he said. When my words remain in you, I am remaining in you. There is something eternal in your voice when you bring scripture into the conversation. By gospel, I simply mean a person who has heard the voice of God and they decide to act on it. So the gospel is all about social justice and mercy and righteousness and compassion and the distribution of power and the unity of all people under one head. And the church, these are the people. Flawed, limited. Some of us, some of these people in the church are really bright and others, mm, I'm just saying. But Jesus is not present in any one of them. He is present when they all come together in his name. The body, the body and the traditions, the rich traditions of this body as it speaks through the centuries is a powerful representation of his being. Are you tracking still? Now here's what I'm saying. What happens is people and churches become good at two of these and one of them atrophies. So what happens here in the church that I grew up in is what I call the institutional church. This is the church of the denomination. This is the academic church. Uh, this is the old, the established church. And what they do is they work really hard on knowing the word of God and then coming together to teach each other what this Bible is saying. Oh, did you hear the way he put that? Wow, that was a thought we never had before. And that becomes kind of the signal of Christ, Jesus of the deep thoughts. The problem is they live at a time when the world is falling apart. Human beings are being minimized simply because of their ethnicity. 
power is being located, not just in individuals, but in churches. And those churches are hiding years of abuse. Children are being destroyed while they are still in the womb. And the whole conversation is about choice. No, this is life. This is life. But you see what happens in the denominational church is the second somebody rises up and says, we have a problem with the way people are being treated in this society. The institutional church rises up and says, now you're getting political. Dude, everything is spiritual. You make it sound like there's two lists. That which Jesus is concerned about and that one's real short. And then there's those things which the leaders of a country must solve and that's long. This is a classic example of an institutional church. The church of my childhood was super good at doctrine. Don't become like them Baptists, them eternal security people. You'll know you've fallen if you start believing in eternal security. And whatever you do, not like the Catholics. Don't be like the Catholics. Oh, they worship Mary and all that other stuff. Holy cow. That was cussing, by the way, in my world. See, we did not realize and we did not care that the Catholic Church has a far better track record in defending life. They actually have a theology of the body. We Wesleyans never heard of such a thing in my day. We had two feet firmly planted in midair. No foundation at all. But thank God we don't drink wine at communion. It's grape juice. You see what I mean? Are you listening? It's an institutional church. So the way that we solve this is the next generation comes along <laughs> and they invent a social justice Jesus. And this is Jesus <laughs> who is all about the borders and all about racism, all about income redistribution. So they plant churches, contemporary churches, in an attempt to bring the gospel into every event in the public's life. And this we applaud. The problem is that they're biblically illiterate. So now that they have everyone's attention, they have nothing finally to say because all they do is they recycle rhetoric that they've heard on social media. 
When a person's heart and mind is captive to the word of God, that person's biblical imagination and social agenda has been taken over by the claims of the word of God. And the problem with this kind of Jesus is not that it's wrong, it's that it's too narrow. There are about three subjects that they care about, and incidentally, those are the same subjects that are trending. As soon as the public spotlight moves to another subject, they'll start caring about that. So my problem with your social justice Jesus is not your rhetoric, it's your table of contents. You need to worry as much about just and unjust war. And I never hear that. We've aborted the nation of Canada since I was a boy. And you've come to accept that as normal. In fact, you roll your eyes when I bring it up. But you don't realize this. All of these ethics rise or fall on the same assumptions that motivate your causes. They all come from a biblical imagination. Okay, Steve. If you want to send an email, send it to Emily Vermilia at uh, College West. The last one is, I don't have a good word for it. I'm calling it the loner Jesus. This is the person, and you've met them, have you not? They just say, no, I love the scripture, and I practice the gospel, but I am so had it with the church. They speak of the church, you know, as if because it's not this perfect entity, it's like we're not aware of our own holes. You don't think we know these things? We know all of the holes in the church, but we've decided to fight the church from within, not from without. Am I fighting it? You bet I'm fighting it, but it's a lover's quarrel. I love it, so I can fight it. And I'm in it up to my neck. And so I can say some things that you can't say until you've committed to the church. Like it or not, it is the body of Christ. Like it or not, it is the bride of Christ. If I had a friend... whose spouse I thought was unattractive. Do you think I would be dumb enough to say that? If I say you and me, we're tight. Your bride, on the other hand, I think that'd be the end of our friendship. You better think hard before you start saying things about the church. He might feel differently than you. 
And on that day, your argument will be with him, not me. I had a man call me a couple weeks ago. He said, the guy in his church, he said, I'm not going to abide by the membership commitments because my heart is captive to the word of God. I'm practicing the gospel. I don't need to do anything that Jesus did not say to do. (laughs) What he forgets is that Jesus himself is a member of a trinity. Jesus himself is not a solo individual. Jesus himself sits in a community of three and consistently defers him power to the other two. If you're truly like Jesus, you humble yourself and become obedient unto those around you. Do I believe in all the membership commitments of the Wesleyan Church? Of course I don't. Of course not. But I decided a long time ago that isn't the question. The question is who gets to decide? Is it me or is it the body? When you belong to something that is larger than you, you defer some things to the consensus of the body. Everybody exhale. All right. Well, here's our tendency, church. It is to become institutional, social, or just all alone. And what is needed in our church today is the integration of all three of these things. We need a church that doubles down on this center where only Christ himself is. And that can't happen unless the individual members in that church themselves recommit to one of these things. Some of you are sitting here saying, oh man, I see what you mean about this institutional thing. And so you've become too social and therefore illiterate. Others of you are saying, I am so tired of this social agenda that people keep pushing. And and you want to just either leave the church or you want to go back to your dogmas and, and reinforce your doctrines. And you forget that Jesus is one who opens the eyes of the blind, releases the oppressed, and gives freedom from despair. 